You can't see me, but I'm wearing an awesome single tracks hat right now. It's actually the reason my voice sounds so amazing. Okay, so maybe not, but you never know until you get a hat for yourself. Go to shop.singletracks.com to find single tracks hats, t-shirts, stickers, tubular headwear, and can coolers. Shipping is free within the USA, and your purchase helps support the Single Tracks podcast. That's shop.singletracks.com, and thank you for your support. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Doug Blees. Doug is a mountain biker and environmental researcher based in Scotland. He's a member of EMBA EU and has served in active trail planning roles with the Aberdeen Trail Association. Thanks for joining us, Doug. Oh, thanks very much. I'm really pleased to be here. Well, tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background. Oh, well, my background really is uh, one of primarily playing outside. I think that's how I describe it to most people when they ask. That sounds fun. Yeah, yeah. I kind of like to think that I'm a professional at playing outside. uh, And I'm lucky enough now to kind of get paid to at least play outside for 50% of my time. But yeah, playing outside when I was young was followed by a period of time working in the forestry sector um, and then subsequently studying for a degree in countryside management and environmental management. Uh, And then since that time, I've worked as an environmental consultant uh, with one of Scotland's best team of ecologists, a company called EnviroCentre. So that's since about 2009. Okay. And of course, I still like playing outside. So um, (laughs) uh, so yeah, so there's there's a theme here, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what kind of projects do you work on professionally? Like, are, are we talking like buildings or, or things that are being cited for particular environments? Yeah, I suppose. Well, actually, the market's changed even since 2009. So mm. when I first started professionally playing outside, <laughs> it was all uh, renewable energy product, projects and onshore wind farms and hydroelectric schemes. Hmm. And then just political shifts in the UK removed a lot of the incentives for those schemes. So our markets really changed towards, really strongly towards housing developments. Hmm, Um, Yeah, a big shortage in housing developments for a number of years. And so there was a bit of a catch-up game in uh, the UK economy. So, So yeah, so we started to become approached by housing developers and For the last maybe seven or eight years, that's been a strong focus. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, it's it's moving again towards uh, energy infrastructure and cable connection routes and road infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Seem to be big players in in what we do. And then just increasing now is really uh, focused once again on non-development related projects, more around recreation uh, yeah, countryside recreation, countryside access, uh, habitat creation and habitat management is is coming back towards us as professional ecologists again. So, so yeah, times are shifting. Yeah, well, that's one of the things I don't know that everybody realizes that basically when any project is done, there is this sort of environmental assessment that's done. And, you know, whether that's a wind farm or a housing development or what we're going to be talking about, uh, trails. Um, so how have you been involved in mountain bike trail planning and development over the years? Uh, well, again, bringing you back to playing outside, I, I'm sort of not ashamed to admit that living in an area where there's very little invested in formal trail infrastructure, I've spent my own time in the forest with the tools, with or without permission, uh, looking, looking after the wild trail network. So that's really how I got interested in you know, as a mountain biker, mm-hmm. interested in countryside management and access and and also the creative element of building and maintaining trails mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and that kind of, that kind of uh, I suppose, sense of altruism that you get from, from doing something like that. Mm-hmm. that. That's how it first began. And then in a couple of years ago, I was approached by well, now a good friend, Will Clark, at developing mountain biking in Scotland, uh, which is our industry body, uh, with the idea of forming a committee of, he just sort of handpicked some like-minded individuals, <laughs> brought them together. for to, We all wanted to do something better for our region and be less disparate and uh, underground 
and more open and inclusive and trying to progress some stuff in the bike scene that was really ramping up. So, you know, our nearest formal trail infrastructure is many hours drive away, really. We have a small element here, but nothing significant. So that kind of gap really brought my spark my interest in trail networks um, and really that's how planning and development of mountain bike trail infrastructure began it was completely voluntary and not really linked to my professional career mm. maybe really in a really cunning way will identified that what i do for a living kind of has a crossover and i have a professional network in as much in as much as I know a lot of the landowners and I know a lot of the land constraints regarding trail networks. So things began to kind of escalate quite quickly. And us as a group, a volunteer group, found ourselves, I would like to say, at the forefront of the kind of UK trail association movement. Yeah. More and more, I started to use my academic background and my current professional career uh, to sort of complement that, um, in the local land management circles, I was able to speak about conflicts from a non-mountain biker's perspective mm -hmm. and, and kind of hold that middle ground quite strongly. They're moving on from that, it's actually developed into you know the team that I work with at Enviro Centre really being approached by community groups and landowners about the possible environmental impacts of future trail projects. So it actually, you know, it, it was born out of what I do for a living and my playing outside. And then it's now returned to becoming something that we actually deliver as a team on a commercial status, but obviously in support of uh, what we believe to be projects with good environmental performance at heart. Yeah. Well, I find it interesting that you started out building trails, let's say unofficially, um, because, you know, a lot of times there's the impression that unofficial trail builders are not necessarily thinking of the environment when they're doing what they're doing. I mean, was that, has that always been something you've considered? Like, you know, whether you're, you're building an official trail or not sort of thinking about how is this going to impact the place where I'm building the trail? Yeah, definitely. But for me, it would probably become, it was it's second nature. It's not something that I necessarily have to plan. So if I'm, you know, if I was, working on a trail independently it's something that's been in me my whole life really mm -hmm. so so actually having the chance with the trail association to speak about these subjects with other people that have to actually consciously think about those elements before they even pick up the tool has been re has been a real eye-opener and it's been a real pleasure to share knowledge and and then in return gain knowledge because yeah you know, I'm, I'm not the world's best trail builder and certainly not the region's best trail builder mm -hmm. and i've learned heaps and heaps out of people that can build really good trails and i've been able to tell them about the, the habitats that they're working in mm -hmm. and, and what we ought to be thinking about um, and it's been completely productive it's not like a it's not a constraining issue it can be uh, like anything, right trail in the right place, built in the right way, is is of minimal impact, really, and it's of a social good. So, it's a really good mix of that social, environmental, and local economic mix. If you get it right, bang in the middle mm. of that mix, then everyone's happy. Yeah, in the United States, and I imagine other parts of the world as well, trail planning and approvals can take years. And a lot of times environmental impact considerations are required and, and some of those can be pretty time consuming them, themselves. So are these studies generally pretty standardized or do they have to be customized for every trail project that you're working on? Yeah, definitely. And I would concur like the projects here seem to take a very, very long time to come to fruition. Mm -hmm. the, trick, the trick, obviously, when you're standing on the sidelines is is kind of hoping that the people involved in the center of the project kind of maintain their motivation but it seems to be mainly due to issues around in scotland in relation to land ownership and community tra transfer of assets so um, it's a famous statistic put out there that 
there's only about 480 people own the majority of Scotland's land. Oh, wow. And, and that's, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about some of the most affluent people in the world. Mm-hmm. They, they, don't, they don't need a mountain bike trail centre on their land. <laughs> right. They, they, already, they already have billions in the bank. They don't, there's, no, there's nothing to incentivize them to do that. So community transfer of public-owned land seems to be, or, or charitable trust-owned land seems to be the way forward. But that, in, even in itself, seems to be a very, very lengthy and difficult process. Uh, and that's before you even start raising money to build your trail project. So, so yeah, I can sympathise with that. And, and almost it's quite comforting to know that maybe Scotland's not the only country in the world which suffers <laughs> lengthy projects. Um, but in relation to... Uh, standardized surveys yes in a way there's a a raft of standard survey to be done for a range of different species and habitats and we have uh, what's called well our industry body is the chartered institute of ecology and environmental management and they produce the guidelines the standards that we're supposed to meet for surveys so that if anybody wanted to scrutinize the work or the results they and refer it to that body. So in that sense, yes, people phone us up and say, can I have a habitat survey? And we will design it to meet those standards. In terms of where it's not standardized is just the approach that we take on a site-specific project. So whilst we're, I suppose, after the inquiry, the next thing we do is actually start researching the land and the landscape um, and so we have various resources that we can tap into uh, to sort of tell us anything that we might not know about this this land and what species or habitats may have been recorded there or what designations international designations might apply or local designations might apply to that land and that really forms how you approach your project on a site-specific basis um, and it, it in, in the broader sense, it will focus you on what you're going to be looking for, what should be there, what might not be there, and makes your field survey as robust as possible when you turn up. Uh, so we call it a desk study, but it's, back, it's background research really on, on the exact land we're going to survey. Okay. That then forms really, I mean, the, the modern approach now is called a preliminary ecological appraisal. Uh, so in the broader sense of the word, a client might say, hey, we've got this idea for a trail centre or some new trails. Uh, we've, been, we've been asked by our local authority for some ecological input. And so if we roughly know what you want to do on your land, then we can do what's called a preliminary ecological appraisal. Mm. And that, that forms the direction the project will take to minimise negative effects on its ecology. Well, let's talk about some of the specific potential types of environmental impacts that are associated with trails. And the most obvious one to most mountain bikers is erosion and soil compaction. What are some of the concerns here that are specific to mountain bikes as opposed to other groups like, you know, hikers or equestrians? Oh, that's really interesting. I've kind of followed the, the hiker, equestrian, mountain biker comparison division argument debate uh, <laughs> yes for quite a while and i find it because i have a background in studying countryside management and a big part of that is access mm-hmm. and scotland's access laws are, are really open and quite sort of world leading in that respect mm-hmm. it's something that you know a countryside management geek like me kind of what i watch from the sidelines with great interest and <laughs> you know try and be impartial but I suppose in one way we could look at erosion and soil compaction. I, I believe that there's enough studies out there now that says that there's no significant difference between in erosion between mountain bikers, horse riders, and hikers or trail runners. Okay. I, but, but when I look at that, I think, has that been looked at on the basis of a constructed and what we probably don't add in there is then 
every time we dig a wild trail, essentially that's a, another form of erosion. Mm-hmm. Now we're not even riding the bike at that time. It's just people on the ground digging. Yeah. So we're eroding the land before we even ride it. Uh, so that when we look at those studies, I, I, I kind of like what the scientist in me then says, well, what hasn't been accounted for in that study? If it's just tire tread on a trail, then bikes probably don't erode trails more than any other land use. So it, it start once you start to scrutinise it. I think it starts to unravel a little bit, and maybe not totally in our in mountain bikers' favour. Mm. A, a badly dug wild tra- a natural trail, which drains really badly, is can be really erosive. I mean, essentially, we can see trails now that like a fall line trail straight down a hill that, that you've just dug yourself a stream. <laughs> yeah. It, it will it will just when it rains it will run with water and whether you're riding or not it's eroding right and when we look at that too it's like it's like how much more could you know one really strong rainfall erode an area compared to you know a hundred or a thousand passes by a biker or a hiker i mean what we're really talking about is water and water management and kind of making sure you're accounting for that right yeah, definitely. And I was recently sent, uh, there was an Imba video on uh, trail construction and the, the angles of fall dependent on the, the gradient of the hill. And it just made complete sense. And, you know, you just think, oh, oh, wow, if we could only get every trail digger, whether they have permission or not, to sit through <laughs> the hour and 20 minutes of that video, that, that would be incredible. But yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's such a nuanced thing erosion but anyway it's like it's it's such an open-ended discussion that we could go on for hours about that I suppose. <laughs> but um, for us i mean we we are essentially professional ecologists and so i kind of I listed a few potential impacts here that of a project that but when we talk about potential impacts we talk about those impacts that like you said at the beginning if you don't think about them this might happen mm-hmm. uh, so we would call them like unmitigated or they could be avoided, knew about them up front. Mm-hmm. So a formal, a typical formal bike park construction might have the potential for tree or woodland removal or other habitat removal. So most of our trail centres in the UK maybe are linked around public forests. So first off, yeah, you'll probably have to fell some trees or fell some woodland. If it's not of tree or woodland removal, you might be thinking about, and if those uh, international viewers can imagine, like the upper section of the Port William Downhill World Cup course, there's no trees there, but you might have an effect on that. That's what we call peatland mm-hmm. or grasslands and wetlands. So your trail route might have an impact on those habitats. So you, you might essentially lose those habitats to your trail, or you might, in the very least, split them in half because you're cutting a trail through them. Then you might think about, well, okay, where's the material going to come from for your trail? So you're going to have a quarry on site and for your aggregate. Hmm. And this country, we call them borrow pits is another way of describing them. You're Mm -hmm. sort of borrowing the material and using it elsewhere. Right, right. Uh, Well, that's going to, so that's, so we count that as habitat removal as well. So we, we actually, map all these things and measure them in our GIS packages and we can quantify the square meterage of habitat that you're going to remove okay. as part of your project. Does that just refer to like the trail corridor itself or are you by adding a trail are you like cutting off or sort of isolating these uh, ecosystems like for example you know if you cut through something like are animals or plants no longer able to like travel in the way that they were were able to do previously yeah indeed so we call that fragmentation so you're, you're fragmenting the habitat and the, and some habitats may be more sensitive to that than others so it's not necessarily it, it may not be a significant impact but if your project goes through to full environmental impact assessment then yes you'll be asked to consider the movement and the the maybe even the population dynamics of that species on site and whether it has whether that will have an impact or not. But in terms of material, again, 
uh, if you're not quarrying the material on site and you have to import it from another source, mm -hmm. you may be raising you may be raising or lowering the the pH of the surrounding soils. So that might affect which plants grow at the edge of your trail. It could be a positive. You might end up with a more diverse range of plants, mm. or you might lose diversity. So there's lots of different things to think about there. Yeah. One of the things we think about a lot with trails, like you said before, was the movement of water. And, and I actually think that more thought about not necessarily, we, we tend to think just about surface water when we think about trails, like, oh, is that, is that corner going to drain well? But sometimes what we don't investigate early enough, I think, as an industry is the movement of groundwater. So side, yeah, sideways movement of water through the soils. Hmm. And as soon as you put a digger, an excavator bucket into that soil, you'll realize where the water's coming from. <laughs> right. And that it, can be the, it could be the driest day of the whole year. And then you dig down and you realize that there's water actually coming up from the ground. Yeah. Um, so groundwater is a is a an interesting subject for us, and and the plants that which rely on groundwater, are, we would call them groundwater dependent ecosystems, and those can be very very susceptible to severance by trails or even just the foundations of a building, for example. Mm -hmm. Then we one of the I mean this is going to sound like a real list of terrible things. Like, <laughs> I mean. But I'm trying to come at it as from an environmental point of view, not from a mountain biker's point of view. But uh, like I said, these are the things that if you don't think about them, they will happen. Mm -hmm. And the next kind of one on my list is is pollution. Mm. And we think about we think about pollution in terms of like oil spills or you know chemical pollution of our seas or something like that. Yeah. But actually, just just sediment into a local stream can have polluting effects on a river because you can be introducing a higher level of nutrients to the river or you could be you could be smothering the spawning beds of fish we have a really interesting species in our region called freshwater pearl mussel mm -hmm. and it's incredibly rare but it's incredibly sensitive to having sediment introduced into its ecosystem mm. um, so when we drain trails we would drain a hillside to create a trail we're actually in, we're actually trying to get water off our trail all the time. So we're, we are, in fact, increasing water and sedimentation into the nearest stream, which flows into the nearest tributary, which flows into the nearest river. And whilst we might not, as mountain bikers and trail builders, we might not cause a mass extinction of a particular species, we're still maybe con contributing to the sedimentation of rivers, yeah. which in general isn't a great thing to have. Yeah, I know there was a case like this in Colorado, one of the trails um, in the Colorado Springs area that was popular. It was identified that there was a, a certain species of fish in a stream, a small stream in the mountains, and a trail happened to run beside it. And yeah, that was the same kind of study and an argument that maybe the trail needs to be rerouted because bikers and hikers too are introducing sediment into the stream, which is not good for the fish. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, well, there you go. Perfect example. And, and, and frankly, it probably happens more than we realize. Um, if some, if nobody was looking at that particular fish species for any particular research reason, then we would never have realized. Yeah. And it would have just carried on for years and years. Um, and then, sort of, well, really to build on your example, the general potential that the works involved in building a trail center. So, when I think about that, I'm not thinking about a couple of guys quietly digging in the woods, mm -hmm. um, but actual excavator works to build uh, a built formal trail infrastructure. It's a long-term project, perhaps months, if not years, of building and machinery operating in these habitats. So we have to then consider that just the presence of those machines and people could disturb, damage, or destroy the resting places of a range of protected animal species. Um, and, and then at some point during each year, you're going to get birds who want to nest 
on these habitats. And if you are still active there, you're going to disturb them from nesting so they won't breed successfully. So you have a knock-on effect to the local population of that species. And or you might push them to another habitat where there where there just happens to be more predators, so they get predated on. And, uh, so you our role in the ecosystem, even for that short period of time, gets thought about in our study. So once we've done our baseline study of hey, what what lives on this site? The very next thing we do is we make a list like this of all the things that could go wrong if you don't think about them. And then the next part of our study really is, okay, so what measures are you going to put in place to, to avoid, mitigate, or if it's unavoidable, compensate for that impact? Hmm. Um, and that will be completely bespoke to the project. Um, and, and the Will be we'll, we'll design that in collaboration with the sort of trail architect and the construction company as a collaboration, because that will then get presented to our local authority and our governing bodies to say, okay, we've thought about the potential impacts. This is how we're going to get around it. Are you happy with that? And hopefully they approve the trail project. Right. Interesting. Yeah. One of the one of the programs I know here uh, where I live in Atlanta in the city, um, there is a tree ordinance. And for every tree of a certain size that needs to be cut down, even for a trail project, you know, even a, a trail that's being built, you know, in a city park or anywhere else, um, that there is a fee for each tree that you take out. And I imagine that part of that is to sort of compensate, like you said, for the loss of that tree, you know, of that portion of the canopy. Um, and again, here in Atlanta, especially that can be, that can be a big, big part of the project. It can kill some projects because it's just too expensive to actually mitigate that loss of, of tree canopy, uh, even to build, you know, a single track trail. Yeah, it's really interesting. And actually for, uh, maybe the last 10 years or so, there's been, uh, quite a few, economic models so they, they try and put an economic figure on on natural capital um so that so that a developer can say well hey i'm going to remove this so it'll cost me i i now know what it's going to cost me if i remove this but actually the, i'd say the majority of our projects don't go down that economic modeling what they try and do is catch these problems at an early design stage um, avoid everything that they possibly can and then what they can't is factored into some form of environmental enhancement that goes alongside the project okay and it might not be linked to mountain biking at all but it could be something like uh let's say you've designed your trail in a uh, commercial forestry plantation so it's fairly homogenous not particularly biodiverse mm -hmm. um, it's been heavily affected by human activity for a couple of hundred years and mm -hmm. um, now the trail project comes in and says well okay we're going to harvest all this timber before we build the trails mm -hmm. what we're going to do is restructure this forest to the species woodland so got our project actually has diversity gain so you can take a, a habitat in the UK, we're actually, we're kind of unlucky enough to have completely ruined almost all of our land. Um, and when we look at some of our landscapes that we think are still wild, they're, they're still pretty heavily affected by human activity from at, at least the Industrial Revolution, if not thousands of years before that. So hmm. we can, there's, there's loads and loads of opportunity in every project whether it's a trail project or a wind farm or a hydroelectric scheme or a housing development scheme um, to actually restructure the, the the habitats that are left behind mm -hmm. and you can project within 5 10 20 or 100 years that the biodiversity net gain will far outweigh the minimal impacts that are unavoidable within design mm. but that's the role of the your professional ecologist that's the person that can say well hey look i've done background research on your land we know what's gone on there for a long time this is what you want to do but from from the outset start factoring these things in 
they won't cost you an awful lot of money, but you can have a real positive effect on local ecosystems. And that really improves the public relations of the project. You'll remove an awful lot of objections to the project as well, because even those who are not mountain bikers can now go and enjoy this area, which has got enhanced biodiversity. So, yeah. So that, that that's really our, our role. Uh, somebody once described the role of an ecologist in a project to me is the last advocate for the natural environment. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what the project is, you could you are the advocate there that can have the biggest influence. And so we always try to get some betterment put into the project. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's good too, that to know that the ecologist is not the person who's standing off in the corner and saying, no, 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 you can't do this. You know, this is going to have a negative impact. You know, if, if a smart ecologist is looking at it, they can say, well, this is an opportunity to actually improve the environment, to put it back closer to what it would have been naturally uh, before humans arrived. And, and I think that's such a positive spin. Yeah, I mean, the, the other element is, um, you know, all of these projects are essentially requests for people to be in the landscape. I want to build a housing development in this landscape, or I want to put uh, employment through re renewable energy in this landscape, or I want to ride my bike through this landscape. So it's not like a big rewilding initiative of removing people and therefore the planet Earth will look after itself. It's, it's, finding, that it's finding that compromise whereby um, we are part of that ecosystem, whether it's urban, uh, set, you know, peri-urban or right out into the countryside. And I don't want to say out into the wild because I don't, I don't think that much of the UK's land is, is wild. Mm -hmm. It's all been managed for something. So, so why not now manage it for, let's say it's a mountain bike project. Great, we're now going to manage it for a mountain bike project. But we, we still have to be responsible and we still have to be custodians of that land. And we still have to take into account the needs of our our local habitats, which contribute to the planet, which contribute to our actions on climate change. Uh, so it's all it's all with the most positive attitude in mind. And and yeah, you, you're right in what you say. Uh, having an ecologist with that, who's who's kind of impartially acting for the project, mm -hmm. but is really the advocate for the environment, is, is valuable. And I would like to say, I mean, there's I was speaking to somebody today, actually, that, you know, not every one of our projects that comes through our doors is always ends up as an environmentally brilliant project. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we do have projects where, you know, we do have to have a difficult conversation with the client to say, this isn't great, guys. Yeah. What you're trying to aim for, you don't have the space within your project to compensate for what you're doing and in those cases all you can really do is is provide the mathematical equation to to the regulator to say well this is what this is what's here this is what they want to do and it would be a negative environmental impact mm. it's up to you guys whether you want to approve it or not mm -hmm. and actually on balance most of them don't get approved oh. And and sometimes not even for environment. Sometimes not even for environmental reasons. Mm -hmm. You just find out that you find out in the fullness of time that you know there was a legal reason or a financial reason or mm -hmm. or something came in from left field and the project just didn't go ahead and it had to be redesigned and remodeled and actually suddenly there was space for the environment mm. and none of the bad design before was necessary. So actually. Yeah, it's a it's a tip to design really, design with the environment in mind, no matter what the project is, and you're probably. But it's such a cliche: work work with nature, you know? <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, and and, and you it it will be easier. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, it, it's fascinating, and I have been, I've taken projects from design right through to construction, and you watch a groundworks contractor battle against nature to build something, whether it's water coming out of the ground or water coming out of the sky or, um, you know, they, they are, or the weather or the climate or anything, 
you know, nature is a significant barrier to us constructing anything. Mm. And so if you don't, if you take it into account from, from day one, then you're already a, got a head start as far as I'm concerned. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned this sort of the, the power and the will of nature in some cases. I want to ask you, how resilient is nature in terms of the ecosystem? And I'm sure it depends on where and sort of what you're considering to be the ecosystem. But, you know, I have to admit that I've built some unofficial trails myself at times. And, you know, part of my thought process was always, well, I'll ride this trail or I'll build this. And, you know, if I'm, if I don't come back here for a year or two, this is all going to just grow back and it's going to disappear and it'll be as if there was never a trail here. But is that, is that true? Like, or are there sort of long-term effects due to trail building, especially if it's not done properly? Yeah, I, I think that that is true in the sense that you described it. Um, a trail that doesn't get ridden will revegetate and within a period of time you'll barely know it was there so yes that's true hey it depends how deep you dig your trail if it's just a surface trail where you've scraped the scraped some uh, loose vegetation off and you've ridden it or it's an old deer trail or something it, yeah I've, I've i know of trails that i look at and i think if people stop riding that within a couple of years it would disappear so in the fullness of time i think is probably the way to think about that question how resilient is our ecosystem at the moment i mean i could just sit here as an ecologist and say hey it's never been more fragile never and it's a really um, but that's looking at it from a global perspective not thinking oh hey if you dig that trail it's a terrible thing for the planet but um yeah it's it's a sad it is a sad state of affairs that actually Every single thing we do, whether it's digging a trail, driving a car to work, eating food that's been shipped from around the planet, it all requires a chunk of natural capital. Hmm. Now, whether that's something's been harvested from soils that can't cope with it or something that you put emissions into the atmosphere, everything, absolutely everything you do will require an input from the natural world. Mm -hmm. And and actually, we, we come down to, it's just life choices. So at some point, there's a level of impact which you, the trail builder, deems acceptable in return for the output. You know, you're going to build this rad trail, you're going to dig it so it's super durable, which just means you've got to dig all the topsoil down, get down to the subsoil. It's going to be absolutely fantastic and loads of people are going to enjoy it it's going to be great mm -hmm. there's an impact to that when you've got an, and it's acceptable to you for the return right so the way i try and look at this is that the greater you your impact like if you're going to decide to do something the greater your impact then the more you might choose to personally mitigate for that in the in the same respect as the developers we were talking about okay you, you might choose well hey i, I yeah i do build trails but actually, in another part of my life, I do something, I give something back to the planet. Mm. I might do, you know, I'm, I'm, I may be a volunteer for my trail association or I might do some conservation work or, you, you know, I mean, the, the cliche is, hey, I, I recycle. So I can <laughs> get away with it. Or I, I drive a Prius or whatever. I mean, take, take your pick. I mean, you, you're only judged by your peers. If you want to turn up to the trail in your Prius, but still dig trails, then, you know, happy days but yeah resilience of ecosystems you could think about it in a planetary scale like that or you think about it at your local scale and i think that's the most important for trail builders trail riders what impact are you having at your local scale are you digging that trail and you know it's not particularly resilient in wet weather well it'll be fine in the dry hmm. but there's a hundred other people that will come and ride it in the wet and they'll cause erosion and sedimentation. And so just having that little bit of extra environmental awareness kind of goes goes a long way, really. It doesn't stop you doing what you want to do. Mm -hmm. It just might it might just alter your decision-making as a designer. Mm -hmm. If you're digging trails, you are a trail designer. So, you know, design it with the best outcome in mind and have that thought that, 
well, what, what am I taking from natural capital here for the output? Um, so it, it, it's, like I said to you at the beginning, when I'm out riding my bike or I'm digging trails, those thought processes kind of go through my mind because that's what I do uh, for 40 hours a week in my work. And so, you know, it's just sort of part of me. It's not, I'm not, I don't do ecology for a job. You know, I am an ecologist, you know, at heart. So it's kind of part of parcel of my, my daily actions, really. Um, and I do loads of, I do, I no doubt do loads of things that have an environmental impact. But what I try and do is balance that in my life with other aspects. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and for people who don't focus on that, it can seem overwhelming and like there's a lot to it and a lot to consider, you know, even if we're not building trails, what can we do as riders to minimize our impact aside from, you know, having a, an impact and then like mitigating it elsewhere? What can we do actually on our rides? Like is skidding bad like is that the thing that we should stop skidding or you know should we avoid Everyone wet trails skid. i mean it seems like there are even just within the way that we choose to ride there are ways that we can minimize our impact but what, what are some of the top ones the ones you think would be like kind of the most important skids and skids and wheelies are just what it's all about surely <laughs> if you're if you are if you're if you like to skid but then at the same time you're not engaging with your local trail builders or tra trail association, then yeah, you're having an, you know, you just, you're not even having an environmental impact. You're having a social impact right. because you're, you're expecting somebody else to come and fix that corner that you just skidded around. Yeah. So it's like this little bit of, um, well, Hey, if that's the kind of person you are, I, I don't know any mountain bikers like that. So we're talking to a mountain bike audience, right? Yeah, the more skids you do, the more you should donate to your trail association. Yeah, but again, that's yeah. I mean, I guess I guess what you're saying too is yeah that you don't necessarily have to to stop skidding. I mean, you can still have fun, but but as long as you're giving back, as long as you're you're also the one digging and, and putting the trail back to the way it was. Yeah, uh, one of the questions I asked this, the riding community when we kind of first got started with the trail association was. Does the weather dictate where you choose to ride? And of course, lots of lots of people might not have an immediate choice of where they ride based on time or location. Mm -hmm. But generally, I think the way to minimise our impacts, really, in the context of uh, where I live and, and the lack of formally built trail uh, trail infrastructure which has got a, a durable tread and is drained correctly, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we're relying on our natural capital to provide us trails. Mm -hmm. So therefore, if you, for, for the people that know me and um, you know, listen to this podcast and might just take one thing from this, it, in the context of Scotland, really, why not find out more about the habitat you're riding in, um, what, what the natural features are, mm -hmm. And really, that should enhance your experience, but also it will give you that sense of custodianship over the land. And you might choose your riding choices will will dictate um, will be dictated by the environment and what it can cope with. Mm -hmm. So, so we deal with a lot of wet weather, but actually, we get this really great run of beautiful dry weather that can take us right through summer autumn into early winter and so you can ride any trail without really having a thinking of an impact environmental impact of erosion but then suddenly it starts to rain and snow and it's pretty wet and horrible and it's like okay so what do you choose to do do you choose to trash the trail so that it's completely trashed for everybody for the rest of the spring just so that you can have a ride because it's the weekend and you have to ride or other choices you you can make um so so there's that element in terms of like the land like learn more about where you're riding what lives there and what should be avoided and then learn more about what the, the type of geology that you're riding on and, and what that how that is affected by weather conditions if you happen to live in a part of the world like me which is 
very negatively affected by weather conditions. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and glo- global impacts. Thinking about transport and travel, that has a carbon output. Um, your purchasing decisions. Those are the really big hitters that you can have to minimize the impact of mountain biking on the planet. Uh, you know that that that's they, those should never be forgotten. It's not all just about bad badly dug or badly ridden trails. Yeah, yeah, and you know you mentioned that idea of being aware of the environments that you're riding through. And um, you actually connected me with one of your colleagues, Douglas, who we're going to be interviewing on a follow-up to this, um, talking about a study that he did that sort of looked at that, uh, at how mountain bikers' behavior changes uh, once they're aware of sort of the potential environmental impact of how they ride. And I believe his study looked at wildlife in particular um, about how, you know, we're able to sort of mitigate our impact on wildlife. So that should be fascinating. Yeah, and it's actually, I mean, hopefully it's it's contributed towards now a, a project which Dimbins and the riding community of the Highlands of Scotland are now involved in in trying to support that particular piece of wildlife. But I'm not going to ruin it for anybody if you have a follow-up. But <laughs> Spoiler, I, I, sadly, yeah. I haven't I haven't actually read Douglas's paper, but I'm keen to read it. But I, I, he talked to me about it about a year ago or so. And, uh, yeah, it's really exciting, and he's a really nice guy and like couldn't have been a better person to do that piece of research. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And, yeah, like you said, too, I mean, I guess that's another piece of – of mountain biking that we don't talk a lot about, but potentially has a big impact. You know, you're talking about sort of your, your carbon footprint, I guess, for lack of a better word in terms of like driving to the trail and, you know, how do you, how do you get to the point where you're on your bike? You know, it's not just about the ride. It's everything leading up to that. Like, you know, which bike did you buy? You know, we've looked at the impact of certain frame materials, like is an aluminum bike, better than a carbon bike in terms of, you know, the footprint and, and all that, the energy needs to create it and all those kinds of things. It's, it's all related. Yeah. More, more, it seems to me like more products and more, more companies are, are springing up to kind of solve that mm-hmm. problem really, which is great because it means that the industry has recognized that they're actually, that the consumers know that there is a problem and they may have purchasing decisions um, and like I say, this discussion really could be separated into global impacts and local impacts. But actually, the more we ignore the global impacts, the more your local habitat will suffer. Um, and and our, we're a kind of um, an interesting region here in Scotland where, as an ecologist, you can see the advancement of species from the south to the north in reaction to global warming. Uh, which include actually invasive species, which have a detrimental effect on the environment and so on and so forth. So again, I'll link it back to what I said before. Everything you do, absolutely everything you do, every mouthful of food you take off your plate has an environmental impact. Now, you could, you could, uh, uh, from, and this is just my point of view, you could burn an awful lot of your own personal energy being hyper-worried and about minimizing every single thing that you do to the very nth degree, or you start looking towards innovation. Well, actually, not or, and you should start to look towards innovative thinking, technology, purchasing power, purchasing decisions, and then accepting that actually there is a there is an impact that you have. But what we're all we're like the most adaptable species on the planet. So, what can you do? to adapt and overcome those problems and what in your local area needs your help to overcome some of the problems of climate change that we're all contributing to in society and and just get involved. And it's like, it's like a call to arms really, but there's always something you can get involved in to help something or somebody do, do life Mm -hmm. better. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's always, but I am, I am interested in that. I mean, I'm a, as an ecologist, I'm interested in that dynamic of how animals, like you said about Douglas, uh, how animals are affected by our, our movement through the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I wanted to kind of bring home was that 
when animals look at us moving through the landscape, we, we're a potential predator. That's why they run away. And so, and so um, in a country where we don't have very many apex, high-end, really big predators, there's lots and lots of animals which consider themselves to be prey. So as you're moving through the woodland on your bike, you, they're looking at you going, oh, my God, maybe it's going to eat me. So they run away. And then you ride on past mm -hmm. and they probably get on with their life because they you're about the 18th predator they've run away from that day. <laughs> yeah. Now, it, so that's a very simplistic view. But what we then look at is sort of the cumulative effect. So you might have one rider rides through the woods and everything runs away for a minute and then it gets back to doing what it was doing. And it, it's perfectly evolved to do that, to run away from predators. Mm -hmm. But if you have a, a thousand riders riding down that trail, then you start to disperse wildlife. They they won't stay there ever. Yeah. So you actually push them onto a you push them onto a neighbouring habitat, mm -hmm. and so they'll have they will have an ecosystem effect onto that neighbouring habitat because you've disrupted something. So those dy population dynamics and and behavioural effects are very very difficult to quantify. Somewhat easy to predict the effects of worst case scenario. Um, but can also feature in impact assessment for the environmental factors of your project. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me because when I first started covering mountain biking in like the late 90s, you know, early 2000s, it seemed like a lot of the talk was about erosion and, you know, what are, what are bikes doing to trails and to soils and things like that. Um, and then over time, it, the conversation sort of evolved to being about this wildlife displacement and, you know, are bikers uh, more likely to displace animals than hikers, you know, due to, again, the speed or the sound that we make or things like that. And to me, yeah, that's, that's a really fascinating question and one that still seems to be open. There doesn't seem to be a lot of answers for that in terms of, you know, the erosion thing, I feel like people have kind of moved on from that and, and have decided, yeah, you know, we're all kind of equally guilty of that. But, uh, the wildlife issue, I feel like is still, still not, uh, something that's been resolved. Yeah, it's, it will be because it's hyper dynamic and there are no end of species to look at and, and gauge how, stress those species are about our presence um, and so you'd have to take each one into consideration and then apply that that consideration back to the overall ecosystem that that animal is contributing to but for a very easy maybe relatable one that could be considered on an international scale in the uk you're probably most likely to disturb woodland deer Mm -hmm. So as you're as you're riding down, you're going to disturb some deer. If you if that's a really popular trail, you're going to push those deer onto the neighbouring habitat. Mm -hmm. The neighbouring habitat might be a really sensitive piece of grassland, right. and so the deer now the deer now feel like the only option they have is to hang out on this grassland, and they'll eat it all. And then the favourable condition of that grassland, which might be very sensitive, starts to decline. Because you have a you're having a knock-on effect from an increased user group in their preferred habitat, so it's it's but you 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 just have to throughout the whole of the project as it evolves, those issues might get raised, questioned, investigated, and then you might find a a solution to that um, through mit the mitigation in your design. So I'd like to say in the UK, there's if you've got a good ecology team with on your project, then you know there's very, it's very rare now that you have an absolute showstopper. Like, no, it just cannot, absolutely cannot happen. Full stop. No way. There's options uh, and there's there's methods and there's usually a need to do something good for your environment. So, as long as you're committed to doing that, then things can find a balance. Yeah. Well, that being said, in your opinion, are there certain places on the planet where bikes shouldn't go, where we shouldn't be allowed to build trails? Okay, so I'll, I'll drop the ecologist uh, flag for a moment, and, and I'll just say no. Right. Because the, As a mountain the, biker, the bike, no. Yeah, yeah. The bike is the bicycle is such an incredible invention. 
like we're so blessed really to have it in our lives and the and the bicycle as a as a thing just keeps getting better and better and from my point of view bikes have the capacity to teach us so much uh, and contribute to society and keep us mobile uh, and for me personally it brings people together in such a unique way mm-hmm. so i you know like i said at the beginning I, i've been able to speak to so many more mountain bikers about the ecology of their of the woodlands that they ride in and they might ride there every single week and i'm, I'm usually able to tell them something about the woodland that they didn't know ah, interesting and it raises awareness now if it hadn't been for the bike then they wouldn't be aware right and yeah danny mccaskill's film i think this week on the slabs proves that you can ride a bike pretty much anywhere so um uh, so yeah, no, go for it. Ride your bike, but be aware. That's all. That's all that's required. Yeah. Well, finally, I want to ask you how you would grade the mountain bike industry's overall eco footprint. Okay. I thought about this question because you gave them to me earlier, and <laughs> improving. Improving. That's yeah. what. That's what I came down to. Yeah. Improving. Not as and bad as cars. Right. No, no. Well, well, even the car industry is improving. It's true. Massively, We're all improving. But, yeah. yeah, it's improving, and it's all down to Johan Borelli, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> that man is that man is an absolute powerhouse for the environment, and uh, I'm following his new bike uh, deal with great interest. So again, it comes down to awareness for you, right? I mean, yeah, it comes down to awareness. I mean, it's going to sound really hard um, when things don't go right you could arguably say that it comes down to arrogance or ignorance. And ignorance can be completely innocent, arrogance less so perhaps. But, you know, the more we, – we all love being in these environments. So, uh, And there's been plenty written about them, and there's, the, the information's all there to find out, and there's people like myself riding bikes all the time. So, you know, you know, ask and speak to people and just find out a little bit more about – even if it's not about the ecological – science just how that landscape that you're riding in is actually managed what are the management priorities it could be a commercial timber woodland so that's the main priority of the woodlands to grow timber for the construction industry if you just find out a little bit more about it you then start to make decisions about where you know where a trail might go or um, you know whether a local trail infrastructure project in that environment is suitable if that's the right location etc etc so it's just the more you're aware then the more you're engaged with the subject and if you care about your environment the environment that you ride in then engage with it yeah there's always something to find out but really how's the eco footprint i thought really that we have an incredible opportunity to create quality experiences in cherished landscapes yeah and the bike facilitates that we should ride our bikes we should be proud of riding our bikes and we should be outward looking and and maybe we, we should evolve to a point where we're able to see ourselves as others see us. Mm-hmm. So if you're linked back to your quote about a question, uh, the question industry or hikers, mm-hmm. how do they see us? Right. If they see us in a negative light, then maybe we've got something to do. Um, let hopefully they see us in a positive light so let, let's if we see ourselves positively then we just need to check every now and again and in my opinion we see ourselves as others see us yeah yeah that's really really insightful and really wise because i was going to bring up that you know to some of these outside groups they, they don't see mountain bikers necessarily as environmental stewards and yet if we ask ourselves, we would all say, well, sure, we love the environment. We love nature. That's why we're out here. Um, you know, we enjoy these outdoor spaces in these wild places. Um, but yeah, there is sort of a disconnect between our sort of how people see us, how outside groups see us versus how we see ourselves. And, and maybe that means we need to change something. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and to bring it back to the trail association movement and, really from, from an insider's point of view and helping those guys get things set up and running. Um, really, that's the opportunity that we have as a community to to promote how we really 
feel about the environment and, and what we want to do for our environment. Mm -hmm. The fact is what we're asking of the environment is that we get to enjoy really good trails. Yeah. So if you make your trails good and they're environmentally good and you've got nothing to defend because you've thought about it and you've designed it well and you've, you've researched your site and you've, you've done things to the best of your ability, then it's hard to criticize. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, no, it's a very, very interesting time. Yeah, we can enjoy it with a clean conscience, and that that makes it all the better. I, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. And just keep, and just keep constantly self-assessing as well. Like what's coming next? Whatever technology is coming next. As soon as we stop improving and stop developing how we do things, then the world will pass us by, and we will be seen as old-fashioned and having too much of an impact. So mm. let's stay. I'm quite keen that we stay ahead of the game here and actually promote what we're doing alongside mountain biking. It's mm -hmm. not just about digging and riding. It's, it's a whole culture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Well, Doug, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been super enlightening and insightful and, uh, yeah, thank you. Oh, absolute pleasure. I'm a big fan of the podcast. It's an absolute honor to be here. All right. Well, that's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you next week.